Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, this is Phil. Welcome back to Weird Studies. After a month's hiatus, J.F. and I are back, at it again, mad at the pen, glad that we win a tad fat and a bad hat for men. It's a new academic year, fall 2023, and in the first week of this semester's syllabus, we're covering the temperance card of the tarot. This is the ninth installment of our irregular series on the 22 major arcana, And if you are new to the tarot, I encourage you to check out the overview presented in the introduction to our first installment in this series, episode 77, on the Fool card. Since then, we've rambled through the Empress, the Moon, the Tower, the Wheel of Fortune, the Star, Death, and the Chariot, following a path that marks where our heads were at each time we recorded one of these shows. Why Temperance for the New Year? For me, it has something to do with returning to the hurly-burly of academia. Temperance means mixing things together, and after a year's sabbatical, I'm looking for the right mixture of active and contemplative modes of life. For J.F., on the other hand, it has to do with a new class he's teaching, Art in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, which it is not too late to sign up for on NeuroLearning. We've put a link in the notes to this show. Despite the fact that we had widely different starting points, J.F. and I ended up converging improbably on the same topic, cybernetics. It might be helpful for me to introduce this topic. Cybernetics is a science of automatic, self-governing control systems. It originated in the 1940s, in the wartime research of an MIT mathematician named Norbert Wiener. Wiener was working on improving the accuracy of anti-aircraft guns and conceived a model where the behavior of an enemy pilot would be fed into a self-correcting targeting system. The mathematics of such self-regulating systems became the basis for cybernetics, which Wiener theorized in his sinister-sounding book, The Human Use of Human Beings. The word comes from Greek, kybernetes, which means steersman. In a cybernetic system, there is a steersman, or governor, that changes the behavior of a mechanism on the basis of incoming information. Those changes in mechanical behavior in turn affect the system as a whole, which thereby generates new information, which is then fed back into the governor, which in turn changes the behavior of the mechanism, and so on. It's a feedback loop. Think of how a home thermostat works. The temperature drops below a set limit and the thermostat triggers the furnace, The furnace heats the air until the temperature rises above that limit and the thermostat cuts the furnace off. There's a feedback loop between the house temperature, the furnace, and the governor of the system, the thermostat. Systems like this can become extremely complex, as they are in AI, as well as in organisms, societies, human psychology, even art and religion. There is such a thing as cybernetic mysticism, which Weirdosphere Eminence Gris' Eric Davis wrote about in his book Technosis. 
Wiener's The Human Use of Human Beings, by contrast, is an expression of high technocracy in an age of big science. And you can kind of see the point. After decades of war waged by lone despots, who wouldn't like the idea of peace administered not through human caprice but through the benevolent action of self-regulating social systems? What could go wrong? Perhaps I'm getting a bit far afield from the temperance card, but I hope my explanation of cybernetics helps set up the conversation that follows. A great chat with my buddy J.F., who I am happy to be seeing once again each week, floating in his reconstitution chamber, gelatinous, half-formed appendages wriggling and flapping in excitement as he expounds his theory of the celestial machine. I hope you enjoy this conversation. And I also hope you enjoy the absence of ads. Wink, wink. That reconstitution chamber wasn't cheap, and we have to find some way to pay for the large quantities of the, shall we say, tissue demanded by JF's ongoing coalescence into something resembling human form. Mash that Patreon sign-up button there, chief, would ya? Thanks a bunch. Okay, on with the show. So here we are, we're back. Season, we've never really referred to our show, in, we've never really divided into seasons, but I guess that's kind of evolved. It's one of the organic developments that we're finding ourselves. Uh, yeah, and I still think that talking about it in terms of seasons is a little bit of a fiction. I think so. But the longer we do this, the more real it feels, because it's true that in a new cycle of shows like especially after we take a break which we do around christmas and which we always do in august we start noticing new trends new themes new yeah. tendencies beginning to come in and when i look back at old shows i'll see a whole run of shows where we seem to be worrying at the same set of themes yeah so i do think that there is a kind of very loosely defined center that emerges every time we do a new slate of shows but the i agree that but we can never sort of tell at the front end what that's going to be it all always emerges spontaneously so who knows what this season's going to be about the, the term season connotes a kind of like predictable cycle but these are all seasons in hell these are just emergent seasons <laughs> unplanned unforeseen we'll find out what this season's about unplanned unforeseen and unendurable much like hell. Exactly. Unendurable if you try to live in it. But fortunately, we're just visitors in the zone. We're not permanent, yeah, permanent citizens. Yeah, when I get done with this recording, I'm going back to my life as a normie Midwestern dad. Exactly. Very important. Normie Midwestern dad with a shockingly ill-kempt lawn. I actually have no right to call myself a Midwestern dad with a lawn like mine. Yeah, that's your riff. Everything's perfectly normal except for the untamed wilderness in the front yard yeah so today we're doing another one of our tarot episodes very excited and uh we decided to do a quote-unquote boring card however i've found out that this card is not boring at all quite the contrary temperance yeah 
one of the reasons I don't use the tarot very much, I think, is that I've never given enough... I've been a little bit overwhelmed by the sheer set of images that the tarot represents. And whenever I've tried to study it, then I'm kind of bombarded with all these different kind of iconographical entities and whatever, and trying to make sense of them all, trying to put them in relation with one another. And I think one of the great affordances of this series we're doing, this occasional series on the tarot, is that it, it gets us to focus on one card at a time, almost as if it was the only card or just an image that didn't belong to mm -hmm. a... a uh, divination system, even though, of course, that always plays into it. And I find that very, very good, because what it does is it allows me to see through the patina of preconceptions that floats around the cards for me, and to, like, see them anew, or go a little deeper into them. So, if the mm -hmm. Temperance card had come up in a reading in my past, I would have interpreted it as something like a, the card of the golden mean, of balance, of, uh, of adjustment. And, and I don't think it's not that, but there's so much more to it that I hope we can get to, I think in a way it almost subverts that idea, as symbols are wont to do. A symbol looked at closely will always kind of subvert itself and become something very new. And I was really pleased with the effect I got from paying attention to this card for a few days as I prepared for this. What do you think? Is it so yeah. boring to you? No, not in the least. I had the same kind of experience. But I found it interesting in preparing for this card how many of the commentaries on this card are boring. Yeah. So, you know, I read, as I always do, the first thing I do is read the relevant chapter in Meditations on the Tarot, which longtime listeners of the show know how highly I regard that book. And yet I found the chapter on Temperance to be rather dull and not to the point he seemed to want to talk largely about wings and angelology, which is not my favorite subject. And it didn't leave me with really all that much, except a general sense by the end that the temperance, the tempering, the mixing together that he has in mind is between faith and works. The perennial problem of salvation, the question that dogged Martin Luther, among others, do you go to heaven by working for it? by doing good works? Or is it something else, some kind of inner illumination? Is it faith? Is it grace? And Buddhism also has a version of that as well. It's Zen Buddhists arguing about sudden enlightenment, an idea of it as a kind of spontaneous, unplanned, unplannable event versus something as a result of patient, disciplined practice over years and decades. That seems to be where Anonymous, a.k.a. Valentin Tonberg, a.k.a. our known friend, seems to be going with this, which is fine as far as it goes, but that doesn't really convey that much to me. I, if I pull this card and I'm like, oh, it's the old faith and works thing, that's not really probably going to be relevant in my life in a lot of ways. And it is interesting reading Rachel Pollock's essay on this card in Tarot Wisdom, where she says right at the beginning, like, this is not my favorite card. So I wanted to actually to start by thinking a little bit about, like, what is it about this card that makes it seem so boring? And from there, I suppose we could pivot to why that's wrong or what are the unacknowledged or perhaps underappreciated virtues of this card. Mm -hmm. So one rather mundane reason why temperance is not going to make your heart go pit-a-pat, usually when you pull it in a reading is because temperance is a word that was used very politically about a century ago for the temperance movement. And using the word temperance 
as a kind of propaganda word for not drinking at all, for total abstinence, is, as Pollock points out, kind of a mistake. Temperance isn't about abstention. Temperance is about, you know, as you say, a golden mean, finding an average, a middle path, etc. At least that's what it can mean, although I actually have come to conclude that it means a great deal more than that. That kind of slippage of meaning from moderation to abstinence is a very American political thing, like when you talk about family values, for example, or any number of other terms that I'm sure I could pull out of my mind if I wanted to, but I don't because politics is a morass of follies, hatred, schizophrenia, etc., just as George Orwell liked to say it is. Uh, and the less said of that, the better. But the fact that temperance has this association with a kind of, you know, anhedonic uh, fun denying movement of not having fun probably doesn't help of negation probably doesn't help its reputation. But then there's other stuff too. There's an angel and I'm sorry, but angels are boring. Disagree. They are. Angels are fucking boring. I'm, you will not think that at the end of this show. No, I'm sure. That's good. I'm talking to the <laughs> yeah. right guy here. Some, If anybody can weird angels, I know it's you. But I think most people are like, it's a nice white lady with wings and a white nighty. Yeah, I know. And that yeah. shit is not cool. It may be the kind of picture that you would put up in a child's nursery mm -hmm. to convey good spiritual influences and to elevate the moral tone a little bit. But really, what are adults supposed to get from the image of the angel? Well, so that's a, a, and I'm yeah. throwing this out there as a provocation. Understand. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. That I'm, I'm chumming the waters here. Uh, so that's one thing. But also the very idea, even if we move back from the um, political meanings of temperance towards abstinence, even if we pull back from that, the idea that you have option A and option B and there's problems with both. In fact, there's problems in even having to choose. That is a tolerably familiar situation for any human being. But the idea of like, well, you know, a little from column A and a little from column B. Compromise. Put these things together. Find a middle path. That, however adult and responsible. Boring. Fucking boring. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm throwing all of this out and also pointing out, clearly, we are not the first people to think this way. If you read Alistair Crowley's essay on this card in his book on the Thoth Tarot, um, it's all alchemy. Yeah. And I don't know shit from Shinola about alchemy, so it all goes over my head. But it's like highly technical and abstract. And, you know, the ideas there are locked up behind a specific and disciplinary vocabulary. Yeah, and he, he says, I think on two occasions in that little essay, he says, I can't tell you about this next bit because, you know, you need to be a high initiate to learn the real meaning of what I just said or whatever. So basically saying, yeah. there's much more to this card. I just can't tell you what it is. You'll have to, yeah. you know, yeah. so you, you get the sense that he does, call, he calls it art, which is interesting. We'll get to that. And I want to get to that too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
I mean, he means, of course, art in the sense that alchemists use the word. They call what they do art, the royal art. But he needs any type of making, any type of instantiation of a system. And that's the thing. That's where it gets super interesting to me. But I don't know. Maybe we should start with the angels. Why are angels not boring? I think that the image we have of angels is another example of the kind of um, mythopoic neutering that the Victorian era performed on several daimonic entities, including, of course, fairies. Fairies are also boring unless you've listened to several episodes of Weird Studies or read a few (laughs) key books. All kinds of mythical or imaginal entities are turned into impotent icons in the modern era, including, of course, that of the angels. So uh, not to say that the Victorians invented the idea of the winged figure as an angel, but I believe that in the Renaissance, people had a kind of implicit or kind of ambient understanding of angels that made obvious the indexical role that these particular winged cherubs played in the symbology of the art in which they appeared. What I mean by that is that it is as a sign that the angel can sometimes take the form of a winged cherub, you know, or we can get to cherubs and thrones and all that later, but but no one ever thought that that's what angels were. Angels become that, I believe, in the misreading of certain kind of aspects of orthodox iconography by Protestants after the Reformation, so that Okay, so Catholics believe that there are people with wings that come down from God or whatever, even though Protestants largely still believe in angels. The iconography is kept, or the latest, the latest iconography is kept, but the substance is lost. For example, Aquinas's writings on angels are largely ignored for several centuries until they're rediscovered in the late 19th, early 20th century. Today, there's a kind of popular, it's kind of a meme uh, or a thing on online. It's like, whoa, IRL angels or angels as described. You've seen those? So you'll see like oh, yeah, these strangely- Like a huge eyeball with like 32 wings around it or yeah, some shit or, like that. Or like several rings, you know, like yeah. orbiting around each other with eyes on them. And surely in the Apocrypha and in the tradition, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, angels are not described as winged beings. Like when angels appear in the Old Testament- they look like humans at first, and then slowly the prophets who encounter them realize that they're not human. Sometimes they're very vaguely described, and of course, sometimes they're described as monstrosities, uh, Book of Revelation, for example. So that makes angels much more interesting. There's actually a genre called angel horror. I don't know many examples of it. I remember one guy who made a, an angel horror film giving an interview and talking about angel horror, but I don't remember his film and I don't remember any other instances of angel horror. I think that Jacob's Ladder might qualify as uh, oh, angel doc- horror. The, the weeping angels in new school Doctor Who. Okay, That's, sure. Which I take it you haven't seen. No, but, uh, I've never watched the, any Doctor The idea Who. is they're like stone angels, but they move when you're not looking at them and they can move with incredible speed. So if you blink... You might see one of these things like way off in the distance and blink and then it's like right in front of you. Right, uh, right. And so that's like actually an extremely clever horror trope. I, I forget everything about them, what they really are, or where they come from, why they're bad. But anyway, I remember that though. I love it. Uh, Jacob's Ladder is, is a film that I think qualifies as angel Never horror. Seen it. Fantastic movie, which we should watch and do a show on someday. 
and another film of that same of that era, late eighties, Flatliners, which is a film, a brilliant concept, but somehow the execution wasn't great. It's a film about. Oh, I, medical- I remember watching that. Yeah, yeah, I saw that in the movie theater when it came out. That's an old ass movie, though. Well, 89, 90. Uh, it, it's yeah. not that memorable, but the concept is brilliant. It's about these medical students who basically find this like base, this industrial space where they can conduct experiments in private, and they start to bring themselves to the point of death so that they experience the afterlife and then kind of revive themselves. They have the others revive them. So they're, they're like experimenting with near-death experience, oh, um, which is super right. great. Okay. But then they bring things back with them. And these things turn out to be kind of demonic entities that are representative of their past. But in a way, these demons are working towards their salvation. And one thing that you see both in the biblical literature and in the mystical literature is that angels are often monstrous beings or uh, antagonistic beings. You know, when St. Francis encounters the seraph, he is basically just torn to pieces by it. Um, there's the famous statue of the little cherub looking, you know, rather boring, but with an arrow pointed at Teresa uh, of Avila's heart. So angels have a kind of extremely ambiguous nature in the literature. So that makes them, to me, weird and therefore interesting. But you're right, the staid image of the winged figure is not the most inspiring. So we have to kind of trace it back to where it comes from. Why do angels have wings? What are angels? And to me, when I look at the temperance card, and this is going to be the insight that I'll try to bring into the conversation about angels, is that angels to me are machines. Machines Mm. to me are attempts at creating angels on earth. When I see the temperance card, I see a diagram of a machine. And I think it's immediately obvious when you look at it. You have a feedback system. And if you read Tom Berg's chapter... He describes the role of the guardian angel, which each of us has. According to Orthodox doctrine, we each have a guardian angel. The guardian angel is with us for one reason. It is because although we retain the image of God, we retain radically in our nature the image of God, we have lost the likeness of God, which is the way the image manifests in creation. So we have the image of God, but we keep screwing it up because of the fall, because we're fallen. So we need to recover the likeness of God. Our likeness to God is a potential. Our image to God is a given as human beings. And the angel, the guardian angel for Tomberg, is the regulatory mechanism that ensures a just measure of image and likeness as we try to manifest or um, uh, infuse our lives with the image of God by becoming like God, right? So the angel is part of a feedback mechanism. It almost plays the role of a controller in a feedback loop that makes sure that our radical nature as divine beings and our radical potentiality as divine creatures within the moral universe is kind of maintained. It's a regulatory role that they play. And I found that really interesting because it's strangely germane to other descriptions of angels, which to me have always felt rather technological. There's something machine-like about angels, the way that they perform a specific function, the way that often they're described as mechanical contraptions, creatures with wheels within wheels. Supposedly, the throne of God is made of angels. A machinic assemblage. A machinic assemblage. They are intellectual or celestial machines that govern 
the functioning of the universe. For example, angels were once thought to be the forces that move the planetary spheres, right? They were basically celestial machinery. But they're different from our machines because our machines are dead. These machines are alive and free. In fact, several of these machines decided not to follow the plan and to fall, right? And became Lucifer and his demons. So these are a-causal machines, free meaning and a-causal. These are machines that are beyond causality, but that instantiate causality and assure a regulatory cybernetic functioning to the cosmos. If I were to make my own tarot deck, I would call this card, and some people might have done this already, I would call it cybernetics or uh, the cybernute or something like that. Um, hmm. I read Crowley's terminology, his art, as meaning that. Art in the old medieval sense of making something that works, much broader than fine art, or uh, even broader, I think, than alchemy, although alchemy would be the ultimate thing. The Philosopher's Stone is a machine. An alchemist working on the Philosopher's Stone is working on an object that will instantiate a process that will transform them. It's a technological operation. The hope is that once the stone is created, it is automated and does its thing. You know, it, it, mm. the process is working on you as much as you're working on the process. That's kind of the key note of alchemy. So that's how I read it. And that's what makes it interesting to me. Does it have anything to do with the fact that I have a class on AI starting next week? Probably. But I, I see it as a synchronicity that we decided to do this right at this moment. Because I would never have thought of this if it weren't for the fact that we kind of randomly or weirdly decided to do this card next. Well, it's funny because I came to the exact same conclusion for completely different reasons. Okay. I came here today wanting to talk about cybernetics, but I didn't at all use the same reasoning to get there. So this is very interesting that wow. we should have arrived at the exact same place. But I want to talk about cybernetics and, and why I was thinking of cybernetics. Didn't have to do with angels, but it had to do just with the very basic meaning of what tampering is, mm. what temperance actually means. And it means mixing. The mixing of things. If you talk about a, a person's temper, the old Galenic conception of the human is that we have these humors, we have these different fluids, dynamic, subtle fluids that mix together and mingle, and through their mingling, they form different kinds of people, different tempers, different mixtures. And this idea is something we've talked about, not in context of the temperance card, but actually in talking about the I Ching. In the I Ching, as with the tarot, you have gender polarity. And does that mean that a system like the I Ching is locked in on gender norms? And my argument is no, because the I Ching gives you every situation, every person is a mixture of solid and broken lines, which are characteristically or classically typed as having masculine and feminine energies. And no, it's not about being one thing or the other. It's about being a whole mixture of solid and broken lines, some moving lines, some stationary lines. Each individual person has some gender expression that is a consequence of this tempering, right? So that's not too far off from, I think, some pretty low-hanging fruit ideas that we might get about this card. But I was just sort of thinking about, uh, I was thinking about this question of tempering. And I was like, you know, there's a classic way you might approach a koan. 
is saying like, okay, let's say I'm doing a koan that has to do with this tempering, this inner alchemy, this process of being a multiple or a plural self. And I guess a Jungian would call it individuation, the degree to which we can harmonize all these different selves within us. Let's say I'm thinking about this koan and, and abstractly, I just described what it's about. But ultimately, all koans are really about you and about your relationship to whatever the koan is about. And so one approach might be to ask, who are you when you're tempering? And that's a question that doesn't normally occur to one to <laughs> ask with the temperance card, because you see this uh, angel and you're like, oh, tempering is what the angel does. No, it's what you do all the time. But what are the situations when you do it? And I got thinking about it. I'm like, OK, well, when, do, when am I mixing things? Well, when I'm cooking. You know, and so what is, who am I when I'm cooking? And I'm like visualizing this pretty vividly. And it got me thinking about something that Gregory Bateson says in the Steps Towards an Ecology of Mind, one of those classic essays on cybernetics that he wrote. And he's talking about the limits of the human, the skin bag, and how cybernetics immediately puts pressure on the idea of our individuality, that we're little self-willed packets of intention and action defined by a skin limit that divides us from our environment. He's like, well, what about a blind man with a cane? Is his body end at the end of his hand? Clearly not, because he's using a cane as an extension of his body to perceive the limits of his environment. And he's like, so where does the body end? That's an interesting question right there. Well, another one of his thought experiments that he uses to explain cybernetics is a person chopping down a tree. And he breaks it down into a few different steps. The person holding the axe perceives the tree, aims at what they're going for the part of the tree trunk they want to hit with the axe and acts makes a cut and the cut lands where it lands and it's probably slightly off or maybe it's not off at all but it's just a single cut we need another cut and boom there's another cut and maybe a chip flies off the tree and now the person wielding the axe has to make a choice about where the next cut's going to go for maximum effect and each swing of the axe we have the swing, then we have a perception of where the cut now stands with multiple blows of the axe, it makes a judgment about where the next cut should go for maximum effect, and then axe again. And you have these different stages, which all constitute kind of a cycle. And the individual human being in the act of cutting it down a tree or in the act of cooking is a little self-contained cyber, well, not self-contained, actually, a cybernetic system that, so to get back to my cooking analogy, there's me, there's my ingredients. And so roughly analogous with the person cutting down the tree, I measure out a bit of salt and I pitch it into the soup and then I taste the soup. And if it's not salty enough, then I'll add a little bit more. And now maybe I'm like, it's still kind of bland, try a grind of pepper and so on. And you see the same basic procedure. Except, as I say, it's not a self-contained cybernetic system. It's me, but it's also the salt and the pepper. It's the pot. It's the stuff in the pot. And it's all these other things that are going into a 
yeah, a cybernetic process of making. Actually, just this morning, I took an old book off the shelf. This is Lawrence Halprin's The RSVP Cycles, a now largely forgotten book where this guy actually formalizes like a cybernetic theory of art where RSVP stands for four stages. R is resources, what you have at hand. So in my analogy, it would be, you know, the ingredients in the pot and, and so on. S is uh, scores. Any symbolic representation of a process and so the score in this case would be like the recipe that I'm following. Then RSV, V is what he calls value action, which to me is actually trying, almost trying to squish two stages into one. But it's like valuing something like you're assessing, like the axe wielder who's assessing the cuts they've made previously before making the next one. So value like the action. sensor in a cybernetic system. You're gauging the feedback to know what to do yeah. next. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And val so that from that point of view, value action actually is not a bad word no, for it. it works. And then performance, which is the execution of the next action in a sequence of actions. And all of this is to say that although I'm, I started off this train of thought thinking about tempering as something we do, for example, when making a pot of soup, you quickly realize that the choice that Crowley made to call this card art and meaning alchemy, but as you say, it's actually any kind of making. And this card could be the card of art in the sense that you and I use the term all the time, yeah. that art making is a cybernetic activity that constitutes those same stages that Halperin broke down. And the angel that we see in the temperance card, I love your idea that actually that's a machine. And I'm looking at this card right now, and I'm looking at it as in a totally different way. I'm looking at this angel now as an emblem of the cybernetic assemblage of stuff that goes into a process that makes the thing. And of course, in the tarot, the thing that is made is always us. Yeah, exactly. So it has a spiritual connotation. Of course, in a draw, it might refer to all kinds of things, worldly things, very earthly things, when you get the temperance card. although. The major arcana, there is a card for just kind of regular everyday art things. The major arcana tend to signify bigger, more spiritual, more kind of archetypal aspects of your life. But the temperance card is essentially, I, I totally agree with you, a, a card that symbolizes the cybernetic process of, of bringing something into manifestation, ultimately of bringing yourself into manifestation, yourself to put it in the terms that Tomberg would use to bring the image of God that is in you, which is a singular image, right? It's a totally singular thing. The imago dei in a person is not the part of you that's the same as everybody else. It's the part of you that's utterly singular. The part of you mm. that is as new as God, right? Um, hmm. So the part of you that is the imago dei, the image of God within you, is not immediately manifest in the world. Traditionally, the idea is that's because of the fall. Because of the fall, we have the image, we lack the likeness. In order to get the likeness back, and this is because in the book of Genesis, we read that, um, you know, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So theologians have made a big deal of the fact that two terms are used here, even though in the Hebrew, it was probably just a kind of like emphasis added to the same thing. In the evolution of theology, it has come to represent very different things. So that we have the image, we lack the likeness. The goal of life is to realize the singular in us in the world, to become gods in the world, to become 
Yeah, to be like that's what Paul says, to become gods. And this is done through a cybernetic process by which we work within the world, with the world, tempering the elements of the world that surround us, mixing them in, combining them in new ways in order that the image that inhabits us be manifest in the world. Perfect example of it is what's called hesychasm in Eastern Orthodoxy, which is a practice of divinization which the monks of the Eastern Orthodox Church practice, and it, has to, it involves breathing, it involves prayer, it involves a whole feedback system which, applied properly, divinizes the person. Now, putting it this way is almost heretical because it, yeah. the, key, the keynote also, and this is, goes back to what I was saying earlier, the keynote in the Christian tradition is that there are no techniques. The techniques are simply symbolic of a process that resides in a kind of free and uh, completely a-causal event, which is salvation. So the idea is that when you learn hesychasm, the practices of hesychasm in Eastern Orthodoxy, you will always be told, they always say the same thing, this is not yoga, this is not a technique, this is simply a way you're kind of like messaging. It's almost like you're dialing the number and hoping somebody answers at the other end. That's not a technique that will automatically divinize you, or as they call it, they call it theosis. But it is a way, one way, out of probably an infinity of ways, to signal to your guardian angel, to God, to the saint, that you are ready for divinization, in which case the grace of divinization descends upon you and you are transformed. Ultimately, that all comes from God. But nevertheless, the practice of breathing, of saying the Jesus prayer over and over again, of monitoring yourself, of paying attention to what comes up, the, they have their own version of the machio, the deceptive images that come up, the good, the inner light that comes up suddenly, that is the light of the divine. All these things are part of the process, and ultimately the goal is to manifest the God within you in the world. So, whereas image, the image of God inside us, is eternal and atemporal outside of time, the likeness is the image manifested in time. And temperance, to me, is the way in which, with our, the angelic aspects of our own nature, we are able to transform the world uh, in a positive way. Maybe when the mm. card is reversed, it's the opposite. And then we get things like very different types of machines, like machines like what Allen Ginsberg calls Moloch in his famous poem, How. The point is that I agree with you 100% that this has to do with cybernetics, and it goes all the way up and all the way down. It applies mm. to cooking, it applies to cutting down a tree, it applies to self-divinization, as described by the Orthodox mystics.
This is actually an important detail that I want to get back to. So I, I, if I apply this to the practice of the art that I like to practice in my own time, playing classical piano, you know, you can see Lawrence Halprin's RSVP cycle played out very obviously. Scores, you're working from a score. Let's say it's Sibelius F-sharp minor sonatine, which is a piece I've been playing. And then the you know, resources, what you have. I've got my piano, I've got my two hands, I've got, you know, the, the room that I practice in, et cetera, that set the material condition for my practice. And when I'm playing, I, you know, I will play a passage, I will listen to it. This is the value action part of it. I will hear a passage and it doesn't quite sound like what I'm going for. And so I'll make adjustments in my response, and then I'll play again. That's the P, the performance side of the RSVP cycle. And so far, so good. But the danger here is that I am putting the art of piano playing, or indeed any art, on a purely kind of imminent frame footing. I am making it thoroughly reasonable, entirely explicable. Yeah. By talking about the artist as a kind of machine, who only has to kind of have these four stages set in a kind of dynamic cycling movement. There, I've described the entirety of the artistic process, the end, and I can't accept that. In other words, yeah, in other words, a pianist playing the piano is just a very expensive player piano. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you got to feed this thing. You got livestock involved. Man, just give me a regular <laughs> player piano. No, it's exactly it. it and that's always been my problem with a, a kind of radical cybernetic apprehension of reality is that it always ends up there. Well, where did I get the idea that would allow me to proceed in my value action? Right. Where did I get the idea of like that was beautiful and this was not? Exactly. Or what I, I have an idea that represents the beautiful to me or, or what would be beautiful in this passage that I'm working on. And then I play it and it doesn't sound like that to me. So I'm going to keep working on it. But like, there has to be some kind of actual artistic insight somewhere in there that perhaps we could assimilate that to the R part of the RSVP cycle. But at this point, we're clearly straining to schematize this shit. I think it's outside that system. I think it's outside the schema. I think, yeah, I think it's yeah. like, uh, imagine the classic Zen circle, the Enso with the broken ends of the circle. It's not a complete circle. It's, it's like one of those things. I think cybernetics actually are remarkable because a cybernetic system is itself an interface between control, uh, which is what cybernetics initially was. It was the science of control uh, between control and non-control. Yeah. That's actually something that I find very interesting about cybernetics is the way that it opens on one end. Onto chaos, um, yeah. Art, art, and Yeah, and art does that as well. Except in cybernetics, since cyber, most cyberneticists have been staunchly secular materialists, um, there has been a... Uh, I don't know. I mean, the history of cybernetics is a history of strange bedfellows connections between like CIA spooks, acid hippies, do-it-yourself shamans. Yes, yes. I'm, like, I'm talking about like, yeah, I'm not talking about the way cybernetics has been appropriated by all sorts of esoteric movements and countercultural movements. I'm trying to talk about, I'm thinking of Wiener, you know, I'm thinking yeah. of the, the founders. And uh, the tendency has been to, certainly in Wiener, the tendency is to demonize chaos noise the, the goal is to reduce 
noise, to reduce yeah. chaos. Ultimately, ideally, to eliminate it so that we don't have shit like World War II happening again. You know? Right, exactly. Um, yeah. So it's about rationalizing, but it can't rationalize, and this was makes this was makes cybernetics so different from previous rationalist movements or trends of thought, is that it can't rationalize without giving chaos its due. It can't mm. rationalize without an outside. It has to be a broken circle because the feedback loop requires kind of an information coming in from what the cybernetic system can only interpret as chaos. It's not surprising that cybernetics then kind of poured it over into all kinds of spiritual movements and became quickly a kind of a esoteric thing. But at the same time, I, I do think that what it lacks, and maybe it should lack it, maybe it's good that it lacks it, is that the RSVP, it can't ascribe a letter to that thing that makes you play the piano to begin with, that thing mm -hmm. that allows you to sense beauty in music. There's something that escapes the system, that escapes yeah. systemization altogether. And um, that's the part, I think, that the card is pointing us to, the transcendence yes. in, in, uh, the, in a closed oh, feedback that's loop. the wings. I agree. I agree. The wings are the weightlessness, i.e. the absence of gravity, i.e. the acausality of the angelic process. And I think that a lot of technology, and this is something I'm going to talk about in my class, is about taking celestial machines and giving them material form in our world and all of the shit that, that ensues from that. I think that causes all kinds of problems, all benefits notwithstanding. So... I don't know. I think that makes the card interesting, all this stuff. It does. I, I, it it's sure surprising does. to me that we both came to this conclusion. Um, for, for rather different reasons. Yeah. The, yeah. You know, having said, that, oh, that's the wings. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's the fluid, the clear, pure fluid that flows impossibly between two vessels held at waist height. I mean, that yeah. is, after all, the most striking part of the card and something that's amazingly consistent. This morning I was looking at old Marseille decks like a gallery of multiple temperance cards from multiple old decks uh, because the Marseille deck that I have is Hodorowsky's version of the Camoin deck which is great except Hodorowsky could not resist adding a few touches of his own mm -hmm. that he insists are the recovery of the ancient secret lost arcana of the Adepti etc. But what's really interesting is how consistently the exact height and angle of those vessels are like from card to card to card you have one that is held parallel to the ground and the other that is held at a 45 degree angle and there's a flow between them that is not convey visually whether it's going from one to the other or the other to the one it seems as Yoav ben dov in his marvelous commentary on the marseille tarot Tarot, the open reading, which I recommend to anybody listening, is uh, he comments, we might even imagine that it's not like flowing, but somehow like moving, but somehow also static, just floating there, some impossible fluid. Well, it, it certainly looks, the angle is intended to look like an impossible process. We're seeing something impossible. So yes. that immediately connotes the acausal, a kind of dream universe yeah. that doesn't uh, abide by the laws of physics. So this angel is performing an impossible feat. The fact that there are two fluids yeah. is super interesting. I want to let you finish your thought before I get to that, though. Oh, no, just that. I mean, Ben Doav in his book has a marvelous sort of a kind of a feature for each card where he he thinks about what each 
image is doing and then says, okay, so for example, with temperance, he says, temperance does the impossible. Right. That's one thing we can say about this card. So when you pull this card in a reading, you're like, if this is, and this is a card that has always uh, tended to induce puzzlement in me. Like I never quite know what to make of this card. Ben Doav gives some very useful prompts like, well, one thing it could mean is something impossible or, or so pulling off something from outside known chains and circuits of causality. That would seem to like before I was like, oh, it's the wings. I'm like, now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, no, wings, the wings as uh, anonymous, a.k.a. Tonberg, a.k.a. our known friend likes to say the wings emphasize the verticality of the angel, that the angel moves up and down on a vertical axis. And that is not chaos. That's right, a direction. Right. right. But the but this movement of the fluid is impossible. It's a notable impossibility. It's right there in front of us. And so that's kind of an interesting thing. It might connote, yeah, anything along those lines. I'll also point out that Bendov has some other neat prompts. Temperance generates an inner flow. The sense of calmness that we get from this card, that's another attribute that the angel always looks completely imperturbable. Temperance proceeds with patience. That's another one. The sense that perhaps this is an inner process, not just an outer one. So perhaps this flow is an inner flow. You know, so anyway, uh, Bendov has some interesting prompts, but the one that really struck me was, yeah, the idea that this card has something to do with impossibilities. Sticking with our interpretation of the card as a kind of diagram of a machine, what we have here is a perpetual motion machine, a machine that is unaffected by entropy. Mm. The water flows mm. presumably both ways. We can see two streams drawn in. So the, the idea is almost like a kind mm -hmm. of, um, I get a sense of a landscape from it, that the water is flowing in and out through this system. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and not a drop is lost, or or Mo or Mobius strip. A lemniscate is like a figure eight, so like a Mobius strip. Yeah, the point is a feedback system that doesn't lose anything, it doesn't lose information, doesn't lose mm, anything. Okay. There's no friction. Right. It's a kind of celestial machine. Mm, nice. Basically, what it does is it transposes our very causal idea of machines into an acausal frame, into a celestial frame, and certainly, and this is something that Christianity got from Neoplatonism. The universe can be, this all the way, it goes all the way back to the Timaeus by Plato, the universe can be portrayed as a kind of vast machine. The difference between how the ancients made that move and how we make it is that since we've made machines, we tend to think that we cheat the universe when we compare it to something we've made, right? You're constantly hearing this. Oh yeah, they used to describe the universe like a loom or like a ship, and now it's a computer. But the point is that all of mm -hmm. these technologies, the ship, the loom, the computer, are all, in a way, attempts, perhaps, at making, with the causal means we have at our disposal, with the resources offered to us, an image of a machinery that predates humanity, a machinery that is physics in itself, that is the universe in itself. It's not so much that we, hmm. we cheat the universe by comparing it to a machine, but that we should maybe just look at our machines and see them as microcosms of the universe. And the difference between the universe in its ultimate sense and our, our machines, the way Leibniz puts it is brilliant. He says, the problem with our machines is that they are not machines in all of their parts. Whereas the universe is a machine in mm. all of its parts. You are a machine, but every cell in your body is also a machine. And the cells in your body are composed of other machines ad infinitum both ways, towards the microcosm and then towards the macrocosm, where you become a cell within the organic 
body of the earth or whatever it is. So again, this is entirely an image of technology, but of a spiritual technology or an a-causal technology, or maybe the dream of technology as we experienced it before we could instantiate it with the proper instruments and proper tools. For instance, in the Middle Ages, there was all kinds of legends about the brazen head, right? Supposedly Albertus Magnus built a brazen head or Roger Bacon built a brazen head. What was a brazen head? It was a prophetic head. It was a machine made of bronze that prophesied. It told, or it could answer any question, actually. In some instances, it answered only yes or no, like a magic eight ball. In other instances, in other uh, examples, it can actually like embark upon disquisitions on whatever subject you wanted to. That was a computer. Nobody could yet make a physical computer, but the idea was there. And the idea, uh, you can trace it all the way back, all the way back to uh, ancient myths. And so there's a sense in which technology, in light of the conference card, we can start seeing our technology as a manifestation of an archetype that predates technology. And that helps us, I think, reconceive technology in non-human terms. The technology is not simply mm. something humans have made, but to a certain extent is something we've pulled out of the imaginal that was already there in other forms. Hmm. About the two fluids, you know, um, Tom, uh, it wasn't Tomberg, it was uh, the Welkin Tarot, which is, this guy tries to keep his name off his books and stuff, so I don't want to name him, but the author of the Gnostic Tarot, which was sent to me, remember I used it last time, the Gnostic oh, yeah. Tarot uh, by Wilkin Tarot. Go to wilkintarot.com to see this artist's decks. They are amazing. He's got a Shakespeare deck. He's got a Beatles deck. And he's got this Gnostic Tarot deck, which is fantastic. In his chapter, or his little essay on the Temperance card, he mentions that the two fluids correspond to the sacramental fluids, water and oil, right? Or baptismal water and chrism. Baptismal water is applied at birth when you baptize a child. The chrism is traditionally applied at confirmation, but also at the end of life when you get your last rites, the chrism is placed on you. And so there's a symbol here in the water and chrism. If you interpret the two fluids as water and chrism, what you have here is a symbol of the cycle of life, of generation and degeneration, of birth uh, and death. Interesting. Just built into this image of the kind of celestial machine. One thing that we sometimes do in talking through certain concepts, talking particularly about concepts that are very familiar from a secular modernity or the philosophic construal that goes with a secular modernity. One thing we often do is seeking something better than merely opposing such notions, you know, notions of, for example, mechanism. The obvious thing is to look at all mechanistic ideas, all ideas of the cosmos as machine, as being entirely opposed to mystery. Right. You know, Charles Taylor actually makes this explicit, that um, when you look at the development of deism in the 18th century and the increasing preponderance of mechanistic ideas, arguments for God on the basis of an intricate mechanism that is observed in the natural workings of the universe. One thing Taylor points out is how there's a surprising concordance between, on the one hand, a kind of liberal Protestant theology, and on the other hand, a scientific atheism, that however different those two things might be, they both line up against mystery. The idea of having 
either an explanation that covers everything or that in theory could cover everything and things that lie outside of that on principle being abhorrent to both ways of seeing the universe, right? Right, right. And so like the obvious thing is to say, well, this idea of mechanism, that God is a divine watchmaker and the cosmos is a kind of clockwork that just unwinds in its divine way, even if we customize it a la Leibniz and say, oh, well, God's machine is different because all of its bits are machines. It's machines all the way down. Uh, somebody could say, yeah, well, we just haven't figured out how to do that yet. That's next. That's nanotechnology. Right, right. Machines made of machines. Anything that we can impute to a creator God, to the divine, is something that humans can arrogate for themselves in their own makings. There's no secret. There's no mystery. It's just technique. And once we learn sufficiently advanced techniques, see, there was never any mystery. It was just a question of knowing how to do the thing, how to make the appropriately complex machine. So the first an obvious thing that somebody of an esoteric frame of mind, somebody who is fond of spiritual and occult matters as we are, would be simply to look for ways to deny that understanding, to go 180 degrees opposite this. But it seems to me that what you're doing is developing a way of thinking that's a kind of philosophical jujitsu of a sort that we sometimes do. It's like actually Lionel, Lionel Snell, a.k.a. Ramsey Dukes, does this all the time where, you know, if you oppose an idea, you're just going to polarize it and create sort of a demon with two horns. You're just going to end up entrenching a conflict that will feed off of an unresolvable duality between the position you don't like and the one that you're putting up in its place. Yeah. And the idea of resolving the polarity by actually working with the thing that bothers you. In this case, it would be this idea of mechanism. And it seems to me you're doing something like this. You are working with the idea of mechanism to come up with an idea of a divinized mechanism that doesn't dispel mystery, a divinized mechanism that has mystery as a part of the mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. That's the idea. If that makes any sense. It's a dream machine. In fact, machines show up in my view, in dreams and visions long before they show up in actual, you know, material history. The latter, with the angels going up and down. I forget, is it Elijah who sees the, no, Elijah sees the chariot. Who the fuck is it that sees the ladder with the angels going up? Jacob. Yeah. Jacob's ladder. I just I, talked about that I, movie I, earlier today. <laughs> I was like, it couldn't be Jacob's ladder, could it? <laughs> yes, it could. We were just talking about that. Yeah. There's a, again, a ladder, a set of steps, and he sees angels going up and angels going down. It's an image of the two fluids from the card, up and down, mm -hmm. going up and down, intercourse between the two worlds. So I'm mixing a lot of things right now, but I can't help it. Yeah. Um, Temperance, baby. We're yeah, mixing exactly. things up. Yeah. And then I do believe there is a critique against a kind of uh, dark industrial machinery. I do believe that temperance can be upright or reversed as a card. So I don't mm -hmm. want to let go of a critique of technology, but at the same time, I think that technology, like all things, ultimately, it needs to instantiate, it needs to express the radical mystery. And so think of yourself dreaming about a machine. Um, this is a very popular dream. In the annals of um, psychiatry, there's a whole genre of schizophrenic delusion 
Oh, that's uh, right. Called about the influencing machine of people right. imagining a machine controlling their minds or influencing the world and somehow, and they need to find this machine or they know where it lies or whatever. This is an old thing. My personal belief is that people were having influencing machine dreams long before we had actual physical machines that a person could grab onto as, oh, that's what it was. It was a loom. It was a computer. It was a, before we just saw these celestial machines. I have done a lot enough psychedelic tripping to know that what you see when you experience a psychedelic trip is a kind of weird machinery. This is very common, at least. And LSD uh, on uh, salvia divinorum, you will see all kinds of intricate moving parts working together in this crazy system, this kind of celestial contraption that's doing something. You're not sure what it is. Point is, I think that this goes way, way back. The machine long predates humanity. And the thing about a dream machine, a machine in your dreams, is that that machine presupposes an absence of physical laws. It just works. It's smooth. If you dream of a machine made out of steel, well, the steel wasn't mined in your dream world. It just simply appears. There is no atomic structure to the steel uh, in your dream machine. Your dream machine is like the back of the seat in front of you in the uh, airplane that you were talking about. It, mm-hmm. a, a mach- it has no depth other than the depths that tr- the dream decides to show you next. So if you look very closely at the back at, the, at a machine in a dream, you might find out the machine is composed of tiny little elves walking around a village. <laughs> or you might discover that the machine is made of atoms or of a particular type of metal. The point is that causality is completely contingent in dreams. Machines want to live in a world like that because machines want to function forever. Machines don't like entropy. The mind that wants to bring machines into the world Dreams of a world of smooth spaces where machines would not wear down, where the materials we build machines out of would be indestructible, completely immune to corrosion or deterioration. The ideal of the perpetual motion machine is something that I think guides engineering and has since the beginning. What you want is to reduce friction as much as possible so that the machine runs as long as it can. So the machine tends towards a kind of dream reality. It presupposes the laws of a dream world, and it wants us to transform our world into that dream world. Hence, our obsession with creating smooth spaces, efficiency, our our obsession with removing barriers to the flows of libidinal energy or economic energy. The point is that there's a danger to bringing these imaginal machines into the world. And I, I want to recognize the existence of a kind of spiritual mechanism But at the same time, I do think that there's a critique to be made of the way in which technologies are implemented in our society, because I think a lot of it is unrealistic and also um, probably dangerous to our humanity. We've, We've evolved with some theorists called the technium, which is basically a separate environment in which we live, which is made up of technology and our organic bodies, which are subject to the traditional Darwinian forces of evolution are now kind of trapped in this new form of evolution, this technological evolution, which moves at ridiculous speeds. And there's a friction or conflict between our organic bodies and the technological environment we've constructed around us. And I don't think that's a small thing. I think that's important to deal with that because who knows if the robots, you know, once we finally built them, will think we're worth keeping around or not, you know? (laughs) So, sorry, I'm kind of digressing, but... It's ambiguous. I, th- I want to keep it ambiguous, you know? 
Yeah, I guess I have a couple thoughts. Um, one, just thinking about the interpenetration of the machine and the spiritual of um, things working in an entirely predictable way because they are working through mechanism, through the predictable interaction of parts towards some predestined outcome. I mean, this is why machinery or mechanism is sort of inimical to to mysteries because we know, I mean, a mechanism yeah. is pretty much by definition something where like you know what it does, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we talk about like, I saw a ghost, but it was actually just the stirring of wind in the curtains. I don't know if that's a lame example, but that's a, a simple mechanistic explanation for something that maybe you might take to be spiritual, right? Right, right. Uh, but what's interesting is that it can get kind of complicated. This came up when we were in Lilydale and I did a talk on the trash stratum. And I was talking about uh, an episode that Jeff Kripal mentions in his Frederick Myers chapter in his book, Authors of the Impossible, where he talks about uh, psychical researcher Russell Targ, who is a young stage magician, quote, realized he was receiving genuine telepathic information from within the mentalist trick he was performing on stage, which right. Kripal says he takes to be emblematic of the whole problem of the fantastic and the impossible. And Lionel slash Ramsey Dukes has said something similar, um, Lionel being both an occult magician and an accomplished stage magician, we often make an ironclad distinction between truth and falsehood, between trickery and the real deal, and especially in psychical phenomena, we want the real deal. We don't want somebody who is making the table move in a seance through some cunningly contrived and hidden contraption, some mechanism that's making the thing move, right? Because if we found out there was a contraption moving the table, then we know that it wasn't spirits. You know, we would have a cause that we wouldn't need spiritual cause to, to understand. But the example of Russell Targ realizing that he was actually reading minds, like he's doing a mentalist trick, some kind of cold reading technique, and then at a certain point realizes, wait a minute, I have gone well beyond what is knowable through cold reading, and I'm now actually reading someone's mind. You know, Lionel would say that that kind of exchange between trickery and the real deal happens all the time. And by analogy, we could say that we have a comfortable idea that we know what machines are. We know what mechanism is. And that mechanism is the dutiful, inerrant execution of known processes leading to a certain kind of result. But what if in the execution of those known processes, we find the unknowable, mm -hmm. the mysterious sneaking back in? Yeah, I think so. Well, I'll give you an example of the utterly unpredictable suddenly emerging from a perfectly predictable process. And it's the internal combustion engine. Mm. Who would have thought that this thing was going to heat up the atmosphere? It was a machine for heating up the atmosphere. Yeah. The problem with machines is that they want to duplicate themselves. This is something that you get, you look at a fairy tale, like the Sorcerer's Apprentice. It's all about that. Once you start mm. to, te to teach a tool to do its job on its own, and Aristotle said, you know, the only way to get rid of slaves would be to teach our tools to do the work on their own. In other words, he was saying we have to build machines. The minute you teach the broom to sweep on its own, it's going to sweep until there's nothing on earth 
left at all. Or I think it's in the fairy tale, at least in the Fantasia version, which I know um, with Mickey Mouse, uh, it's like they, yeah. the pails of water, right? They use tons yeah, yeah. and tons That's of water. Right. And so you, you can think of the internal combustion engine as uh, if you think of a machine as an animated tool, well then, okay, we have horse-drawn carriages and we are subject to the vicissitudes or vagaries of horse life and the horse world. The horse world has to be taken into account when we want to go from one place to another in a world where horsepower is used. Internal combustion engine, we think now we have control. There's no more horse. There's a motor which we've built, which we understand. We can fix it. We can build it. It's in the, the car. Uh, the, the wagon is moving on its own. It's locomotion, but it's not moving on its own. It's moving thanks to the engine. And the engine may have its own kind of life world. It may have its, its own kind of animating force. And I think mm. that through time, we see as these internal combustion engines begin to multiply, like the brooms and the Sorcerer's Apprentice, they begin to perform a task that they were not designed to perform, which is to completely change the uh, chemical balance the of the atmosphere. Yeah. The atmosphere. Um, and so approaching technology, this is something else that Lionel Snell encourages us to do is to recognize the animating force in our technologies. If your car breaks down, instead of just seeing it as an object, each part mm -hmm. of which you must then scrutinize until you find the one that's not, not working, if your car breaks down, think of it as a being. What has that being been through recently? Why might it not want to work today? Maybe it doesn't want you to attend that meeting you're late for now. Maybe, you know, but the point, <laughs> his point is by thinking of the car in those terms, you will eventually find the part that's not working, but your entire way of approaching the car is so much more expansive than the reductive mm -hmm. way that you might yeah. come up with an etiology of the problem that is much more useful to you insofar as maintaining a car is concerned than if you were just to look at it as a mechanical failure somewhere in this blind mechanism. It's just to our advantage, I think, to see machines as animate to a certain extent as having their own kind of lives and their own non-human agency. aspect of the standard interpretation of the temperance card that I want to challenge, not to throw it out, but just to add something to it, is the idea of a middle way, right? A mm -hmm. middle path. Yeah. Buddhism, which is the religion that I belong to, is the middle path, right? The middle way. And I've always found the standard explanation for that a little disappointing. You know, the Buddha was originally raised in Sybaritic luxury because he was a princeling, and then he discovers old age and death and suffering and decides that he is going to come to the bottom of it all. And so he undergoes heroic ascetisms. He starves himself and torments his body. And he finds that that doesn't work any better than hedonism. And so Buddhism, the path that he eventually finds is the middle path. And I always thought that that was sort of weak. It's like, well, you know, you're not starving yourself and you're not overeating either. Moderation. Yeah, moderation in all things. But actually, I think that there is a deeper 
I won't say more esoteric, but just a deeper understanding of what the middle path really means. And we might get that from the early, like early in the common era book, Verses of the Middle Way by Nagarjuna, the proper title of which is the Mula Madhyama Kakaraka. And feel very proud that I was able to remember that. Mm. Um, the verses of the middle way. And the middle way he's talking about is not some kind of washy compromise between A and B. Okay, so like it's something beyond that. So A and B can mean any two positions. It can be between... Uh, eating too much, eat, eating, not eating enough, yeah. for example. Yeah. We could start with A and B and I could just decide to go all in on A and just eat and eat and eat. And obviously there's some problems with that. And then I might, like the Buddha, go to the opposite extreme and indulge in a life of utmost severity and self-deprivation. And I might find the limits of that. And then I might say, okay, how about instead of just A or just B, how about A plus B? How about we take the best of each or with some kind of compromise between the two. Well, that's already certainly an improvement on just A or just B. But the kind of middle way that Nagarjuna is on about, and this is absolutely foundational to Mahayana Buddhism generally and Zen Buddhism, which is what I practice in particular, is how about neither A nor B? This is sometimes called negative dialectics, where instead of having the A and the B as the base of a triangle, and we can imagine a line extending from A and B upwards towards a common point above them, the apex of the triangle, and that would be some dialectical aufhebung or some... Some compromise. Sort of, yeah. yeah. But in this case, it's kind of negative dialectics where, in fact, you're negating A and B, neither A nor B. Then what? What goes beyond the opposition between eating too much and eating too little, between hedonism and ascetism, between any two extremes? Well, then you're getting into a more abstract space where you're even moving beyond thinking about A and B themselves and thinking rather about what they represent I don't want to go too deep into this, but I get suffice it. it to say this kind of negative dialectics, which we can also associate with Austin Osmond Spare, the neither neither of Austin Spare, that is a thing that can move you into very strange places, yes. quite far away from the wishy-washy compromise, get along, go along, middle path that most people think the temperance card is. Yeah, I totally agree. And where does it, it, it throws you into a territory of mystery in the sense that the idea of eating too much, of satiety versus starvation, both of those ideas presuppose that we know what eating means, what eating's for. They presuppose a bunch of what the Greeks called doxa, opinion. And so the middle way between eating too much and not eating enough is eating just enough. It's Goldilocks, right? Yeah. But it leaves the world unchanged. It reifies a particular apprehension of the world. If you go for neither A nor B, what you're doing is you're moving out of the false dichotomy of eating too much and not eating enough and entering a place where eating becomes a choice, a thing you're approaching in a singular way. Every occasion of eating perhaps becomes totally new, much like the tea ceremony yes. is every time completely new. It would move you into that plane where the newness of things becomes available to you once more. At least that's the way I, I read Dogen, who's one of the few Buddhist writers oh, I've read. I, yeah, I think that's true. 
Nagarjuna's Verses of the Middle Way is actually a practice that you read him insistently nailing contradictions, thinking about walking and not walking. And he starts negating any possible stable understanding of what walking and not walking might be, pointing out the ways in which these things are mutually interdependent. And in the course of reading these things and like breaking down through his negative dialectics, these fixed oppositions, you come out into a place where an apprehension of emptiness becomes possible. The right. emptiness of things, which is not a kind of bad emptiness, it's not nihility, but actually kind of an immense fullness of possibility. Exactly. Where the new exactly. becomes possible. So, so in a sense, Nagarjuna's negative dialectics function as a kind of cybernetic machine to break you out of logic. <laughs> that's really good. Um, yes, that's very true. Or, or, and, and it's not a negation of logic. It's just a no. recognition of the eternal insufficiency of logic in assessing what one should do next. Like there's always mm -hmm. more to the story than your prefab ideas will tell you. And I think that uh, religion, if it does anything, should seek to awaken someone a person, a practitioner to that eternal newness that is the radical mystery at work in reality. Oh, I love this idea of Nagarjuna's verses as themselves a kind of machine, the same kind of machine as this angelic machine yeah. on the temperance card. It's a machine that doesn't dispel mystery, no. that has as part of its machinery, the kind of the always more. You know what I mean? Absolutely. A divine machine, a celestial machine. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>